Sometimes studying the Bible can feel overwhelming and confusing. Grounded in Truth with Janet Dennison will help you learn to study, understand, and apply God's Word to your daily life. His Word is true. And guess what? It's for everyone. So thanks for joining us today as we dive into Scripture together. to the Grounded in Truth podcast with me, Janet Dennison. We are looking at final words of instruction in our most recent study titled, Until the Whole World Hears. This study is a collection of final lessons or messages from Christ and other biblical heroes. Their words are profoundly important because they are among the last words authored for people they loved. This study will remind you to use your life and influence to help others receive the gospel message of Christ. I'm excited to teach these lessons and pray that God will use them to strengthen and inspire you to live your earthly life with God's eternal priorities. Let's get started with this week's lesson. Today we look at James chapter 2, and I titled this lesson, What Does Every Believer Have in Common? James is going to continue teaching with practical uh, information and practical leadership. And remember always that these are people whose religion was so important to them, but they were also a people who had been exiled now for a long time. And it was so important that as they had moved their lives from Jerusalem to lives in foreign, often pagan cities, that they would be able to keep their religion vital, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at the center of what they thought mattered. Remember, chapter one ended with the words, pure and faultless religion is. And then he went on to say it was caring for widows and orphans and keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. Isn't it true that just living in this world can make us less than we want it we want to be or less than we know God wants us to be so james now goes in to say what kinds of things cause us to live like the world it's so important to know what faith looks like or a life of faith looks like it's equally important to know what hinders us from living that life of faith. And in chapter two, he begins again, my brothers and sisters, always keep in mind these words, these lessons are for men and women who have already placed their faith in Jesus as their Lord. And he says to these brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Why is favoritism so opposed to the character of God? What does James mean by that? We have to think differently than the world does. We're called to have our first identity, our most important identity in who we are in Christ. 
And so people are always going to have different levels of life in this world. It's always been true. It will always be true. But we need to not view people based on their level of life in this world. Instead, we're to think of them differently. We're to think of them as God thinks of them. And I always like to remember God sees all of us through rose-colored glasses. The lenses have been stained with the blood of his son. And so he sees us and evaluates our lives and judges our lives through the eyes of our forgiveness, through eyes that know we are forgiven. He sees us as his children. We're to work hard to see other people in this world as God sees them, instead of as the world evaluates who they are. Illustration James uses in verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting, the word is for a synagogue, a meeting, and this man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. At the same time, a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. James in verse 3 says, if you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is saying in the most clear and emphatic way, we don't judge people based on the amount of money they have or the amount of influence in the culture. We don't value people for the same reasons a non-Christian values them. We don't become fascinated with people simply because the culture is fascinated with them. This is consistent teaching throughout scripture. God hates favoritism. And it was probably already occurring in their meeting because he says in verse five, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to who you belong? This was a huge issue in the first century, and it has remained an important issue from that day on. It is within our human nature to value people as the world values them and for the reasons the world values them. And James is saying, watch how you treat people. Don't treat them in according to the values of the world. Treat a person according to what God values. What makes them great? It's their faith in the Lord. 
It's their service to the Lord. That's how we define a great person. It's such an important aspect of showing others who God is and what God values. We aren't equipped to judge, and so we are called to treat people as God has told us to treat them. There is a quote that's attributed to a lot of people, but we know Mother Teresa said this. She said, you will never truly realize God is all you need until he becomes all you truly have. That quote is rich with wisdom. Mother Teresa is someone who gave up a lot of what the world would have given her in order to have as much of God and to serve God as much as she could. And she's one that I believe God would judge as having treated others as he's called us to treat people. In verse 8, James writes, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, what is that royal law? Love your neighbor as yourself. James says, if you keep the royal law, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Every time you've honored a person for reasons other than their godliness, we might be considered a lawbreaker. We need to show people honor for the things they do that are honorable in God's eyes. Verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. That phrase seems difficult to interpret, but remember, James is still talking about our judgment of people and our relationship to God. And hidden in that passage is what you can know God has always valued most. God often uses the concept of adultery to represent a faith that is not grounded in him, that does not put him first. Adultery is allowing our esteem, our love, our passion to go to someone else, to value people as other people value them, and to love what God does not love. And remember, Jesus said, when you commit adultery, it's just if you look at someone with lust. Or when you commit murder, it's when you murder their reputation. You murder their value. We've all been lawbreakers. Why? Because in verse 12, we speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. We are called to speak and act according to God's laws, not the world's. Verse 13, because judgment without mercy. Remember, the royal law is the law of love. 
judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy is the Greek word for love, but it's not just human love. It is God's love given to a person. And mercy, God's mercy, triumphs over judgment. The new covenant law is love. It's a reminder to people who were used to following the laws of religion that there was a new, higher law than simply obeying rules and living, thinking you had pleased God. God will judge us for the way we love him. God will judge us for the way we love others with the love he has given to us. And James writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, those who are already saved, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? And oh, that's probably the most controversial verse in the book of James. It sounds like James is saying, can works save us? If we don't have works, we cannot be saved, or that works are essential to our salvation. What James intends to say in this is still about this witness, this love, this word of God we share with others. He says, how can we claim to share our faith if it isn't backed up by what we do? Can a faith that has no strength behind it, no life behind it, save anyone? Can our witness be true to anyone if it's given from a life that does not bear the fruit of God, the works of God? Again, he gives this illustration. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? James remember, is writing to Jewish Christians who'd been taught to follow rules to please God. And they stepped into this new covenant relationship through Jesus Christ. But it was difficult to separate their new covenant faith from their old covenant works. James wants to teach his readers, remind his readers, that the greatest benefit of our faith is in the way the fruit of our faith is lived out 
in our life before others. Our lives will always be our most important sermons, our most important witness in the world. And so he says to them, do you want evidence that faith without works is dead? He goes on to give it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you claim to have faith but have no deeds? In verse 21, he says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. James uses one of the most poignant stories from the father of the Jewish faith and the father of the Christian faith, the children of Abraham. Why? Did God call Abraham to take Isaac to the top of that mountain and sacrifice him? Why did God stop him before that would ever take place? It is because throughout history, this story of Abraham's faith would be what the gospel would hinge on. Faith. We are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But at the same time, Abraham's faith in God was seen through the works that he did. And that, those works, are what God credited to him as his righteousness. And he became the father of the faith. In verse 24, says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Even Rahab is mentioned in scripture for her great faith. In verse 26, James writes, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's not that our faith doesn't exist. It's that it's like a plant that has no life. It doesn't produce those deeds that faith is supposed to produce. Righteousness is about the saved doing the right thing, those things that God has called us to do. And those things aren't going to be always what's popular. And our faith is not always going to be considered impressive. But what is true is that our faith will be considered 
honest, and genuine, our faith will be considered helpful to God's kingdom if it is grounded in the spiritual truth that's produced by his Holy Spirit. Our works show the world that we believe what the word of God teaches. What hinders our righteousness? You can go all the way back to the book of Isaiah and find the answer. It says, the Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. There's a timelessness, isn't there, of God's word and his truth that endures through every generation. Think back to what we have studied in the book of James today about the truth of God dwelling in the desert like that flower, knowing that the world's truth is going to dry up, but God's justice dwells forever. His righteousness can live in fertile fields. The fruit of our righteousness will be seen in our life when we are right with God, when our walk with him is right, we will have peace in our lives. And the effect of that peace will be a quietness and a confidence in our lives. And that's what James was saying, that we're not going to be tossed about as waves. We're not going to live under respecting opinions as much as we live confident in the word of God. John Bunyan was an English writer. In fact, he's probably best known for writing the very famous novel, The Pilgrim's Progress. Should be assigned reading for every Christian. And he writes this, there is no way to kill a man's righteousness, but by his own consent. We aren't tempted by God to be ungodly. We're tempted by our own evil desires. We're tempted by our own sense of self. And we are tempted to believe sometimes what the world is impressed with. James would have loved this quote from John Bunyan. There's nothing that can kill a man's righteousness unless we allow that to happen. We have within us the strength of God through his Holy Spirit. We can live better if we live influenced most by his voice within us. And may we all know that peace in our lives that James was talking about. It's one of the most significant fruits and one of the best indicators that your life is lined up well with God's will and God's spirit. It's a good goal for us. Let's remember that and not just be hearers of that word, but remember to live it out. See you next time.
Christmas is always a wonderful time to bring our focus and attention back to Jesus, our greatest gift. And what better way to set our hearts and minds than by singing and listening to our favorite Christmas songs. In the Songs Tell the Story Advent Devotional, Janet shares the origin stories of 25 beloved Christmas songs. Our treasured Christmas songs and hymns are reminders of God's perfect gift found in Jesus Christ. They enhance our holiday and help us to fix our eyes on the reason for the season. As an added bonus, our partner ministry, Denison Forum, has created two Spotify playlists to accompany your reading. For traditional Christmas hymns, visit denisonforum.org forward slash hymns. If you prefer modern covers of these Christmas songs, then visit denisonforum.org forward slash covers. Request your copy today by clicking on the link in today's show notes or go to foundationswithjanet.org forward slash advent if you'd like to order there. We pray this devotional will enlighten and inspire you this Advent season. Mm-hmm.